0: Welcome to Attached, a platform for adding breadth and depth to everyday living. I'm Yaakov Danishevsky, and this is the conversation series, focused on my book. In each episode, I invite a special guest to discuss the topic of a particular chapter and how it relates to our lives. Okay, welcome back to another Conversations episode going through the different chapters in my new book, Attached, uh, using those chapter topics as a springboard for conversations with people that I think would be really interesting to hear from. So I'm really excited for this conversation because in my work I have the opportunity, sometimes the privilege, sometimes the challenge, of collaborating with other uh, professionals uh, in terms of shared clients or different situations like that or making referrals. And uh, one of the people that I'm always most relieved and happy to hear when my clients are in a situation that either their spouse or as or if i 'm seeing a couple, one of the individuals is seeing, and the other therapist involved is Dr. Danielle dragon that is always uh, a really positive sign for me uh, because she is consistently one of the most reliable, insightful, and trustworthy therapists and Professionals that I have the opportunity to work with. Uh, so, here, especially in the local Chicago community. So, thank you so much for making time to do this uh, session with me.
1: Thanks for having me. That was a very kind introduction. Thank you <laughs> you noticed
0: that I even called it a session. It's a conversation, right? But I'm like, if I'm talking to you, it's in, in such therapy mode that I'm right, like, session. It's session. good. <laughs> I can use
1: a session. So. <laughs>
0: Okay, so we're up to chapter two in the book, talking about relational spirituality. Uh, And I know that you, uh, I appreciate you made some time to take a look at parts of the book and this chapter in particular. So I'm curious just to hear what your thoughts were, kind of where that topic and what what we talked about, what I talked about in the book, what that brought up for you and your thoughts about it.
1: I mean, I, it's interesting because I think you covered like, A lot in this chapter, um, kind of a lot of different ideas. Um, Right now, the the piece that I think really touched me and stood out to me a lot was the idea of schar mitzvah mitzvah. And you talked about how really a mitzvah is an opportunity for connection, um, as opposed to like you know this score where God is keeping track, you know, but rather like a connecting experience leads to another connecting experience. And then talking about how an Avera leading to another Avera is, is really the, the opposite of that, the inverse of that, which is um, where we find ourselves sometimes in profound aloneness. And I was just thinking like, you know, that really stood out to me because I find that a lot of my clients um, feel very alone. Um, and um, I think it's sort of extessentially a lot of us um, it's not necessarily pathological. I think a lot of us could relate to the concept of aloneness um, and and a life that is like lacking some meaning. So I, w- I wanted to know kind of, I don't know what you were thinking when you were talking about aloneness when you were writing writing this book, but that really stood out to me.
0: Yeah. So I actually... I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote it, who knows, but <laughs> but what I'm thinking about now as you bring this up is something that I actually hadn't thought about until now, which is what we see as mental health professionals a lot of the time is actually what I write about there and what you're referencing of this continuity, almost this domino effect of connection breeds connection, and then disconnection breeds disconnection, or, or aloneness breeds aloneness. So sometimes you hear the phrase, right, hurt people hurt people, right, which is very similar. And then, you know, I like to say loved people love people, right? And and I and I hadn't thought about the schar mitzvah mitzvah. I, I, I was thinking about it more within a person's own choices. So then when they connect, that breeds more connection. And when they disconnect, it breeds more disconnection but there's also almost a, a, in a sense, a, a generational, a developmental aspect well, like a to it neural
1: pathway, even, you know, like, yeah. like I hear what you're saying. Like if you're, you know, kind of in a, like, a you know, I'm, I'm having a vulnerable conversation. And so that's going to push me to have an, another vulnerable conversation right. with this person, almost in like an exposure kind of way. But I was also thinking in, in like a, in a neuropathway kind of way that, that we've we've got these parts of our brains that we, if we exercise a certain way, if we engage a certain way, it kind of draws a little road on that part of our brain. And so we're likely to do that again, that becomes more familiar to us. And so I was thinking, that's what I kind of thought about when I was like, connection breeds more connection, breeds more connection. It's like, Mm. oh, our brain woke up and was like, that's what that feels like. Like, yum. Mm. That's so nice. I want to I wanna go do that type of thing again.
0: Yeah. So can you speak more because I know this is very much an area of specialty for you. Um, speak more about how it is and why it is that the disconnection breeds more more disconnection. And and I think uh knowing some of your areas of specialty, I guess I'll just throw in there how that has to do with shame, maybe. You can take it any direction you want, but how it has to do with in shame your, and... in
1: your uh, in your um in the, in the side notes when I was, I was like, this right. has to be a shame.
0: and then uh, also maybe you could just speak also because again, knowing some of the areas that you specialize in, uh, I don't think either of us are overly keen on, on labeling or pathologizing too much, but I know that you work a lot in a very unique way with personality disorders and, and that can have a lot to do with, I think with this kind of disconnection and leading to more disconnection.
1: So, so the original question was like the idea of, how disconnection leads to more disconnection, like why might that happen?
0: Yeah, what's going on for the person when they, you know, when they a person grew up uh, in 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 a way in which they didn't get that nurturing connection, they didn't get the the mitzvah, yeah. the connection. What 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 happens to them? What's going on inside?
1: Well, so a lot of things are happening to them, and I I was actually speaking to one of the the therapists that works at my site, and we we were talking about how, in some ways, sort of the the most tricky. Type of um, relational experience is is not even necessarily conflict, like a bad relational experience, but the lack of relational experience. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think when we have any type of relational experience, when someone's there, um, we, are, first of all, our, our brain just develops so much having another person there but um we learn about longing longing and wanting relationship and so when we exist in sort of this like neglect and loneliness i I think it does such profound um damage and sort of trickiness for the brain because i think it sometimes even teaches people that it's scary to like want relationship it it creates um it's, it's, I think, even hard for these people to get in touch with that longing, that sense of, I want to connect. Viscerally, I think some of those people um, know less of what that feels like. You know, a person that, say, grew up in a relationship where they had a parent who was part of the time available and attuned and connected, and then some of the time absent or hostile which is certainly problematic and certainly can, can lead to a a lots of different things, but their brain knows in those times of connection, like what that felt like. And so they're, Mm -hmm. they're wanting that. They're aching for that. They're wanting to get back to that ideal place of connection. Um, But people that have experienced profound emotional neglect, um, I think that their their body and their brain are just inherently less familiar of of what it feels like to ache and to long for that idealized sort of dynamic of this person is cluing into me and I'm I'm receiving that and there's something sort of magical going on here. So I, I find that profound neglect is 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 certainly treatable, but um, is it leaves just this trickiness in that, in that humans sometimes don't even know what it is they're looking for, what it is mm-hmm. they want, what it is that feels like. Um, also, I think even the prerequisite to that is um, when we have an adult paying attention to us when we're little, it, there's some very basic things that develop out of that. And one of the basic things that develop out of that is we um, learn about that we we are a separate human. We are a self. We exist. You know, like, Mm -hmm. hello, I'm me. Um, and, And I think that, you know, when we're born we don't really think about these things, but a baby doesn't come out and say, you know, by the way, I'm separate from my mom. You know, <laughs> a baby is nothing sophisticated in that way. So when, when children are born, they don't experience themselves as a separate entity from their caregiver. And eventually like their, their neck starts to mobilize and they start to look around and eventually they start to crawl away. And eventually, you know, their, their vision gets better and they're like, oh my gosh, that's, That's a person. You're a, you're a person, you're a separate entity from me. So in sort of the most basic way, having a person who's emotionally attuned to us when we're little people helps our brain literally develop ourselves as a separate physical and emotional being, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is the most important, the prerequisite for sort of everything to come into place. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so we need that. We we need a person there and paying attention to us. And out of that, we're able to say essentially a person's first thing that comes out of that is, is I exist.
0: Yeah. So, so when it's in the extreme, it's. So I I once had a a rebbe of uh, uh, Rosenzweig in YU whose year I was in, and he used to talk about when we were learning a sugya in Gemara, a topic in Gemara, there'd be different opinions on like how to understand it. So he was very, his, Dara Halimud, his style of learning was to see the full range. He, he went very, very slow. So, like, in an entire year, he would cover like a few pages. Yeah. But on each, on each topic, you would, you would spend a really long time and he would cover the entire scope of, of, of all the opinions within a certain topic. And one of the things he used to say is that the extremes are easy to define and very hard to justify. The middles are much more intuitively justifiable but very hard to explain, very hard to define. Uh, and so sometimes I think as therapists, what we when we try to explain a concept, we often explain it in the extreme version of it, which is really helpful for understanding it in a conceptual way. But then what sometimes happens I think for a lot of people is it doesn't necessarily line up with – The lived experience of their either their experience of themselves or the way that they encounter that in other people. So, the way you just explained it is an amazing way of of explaining the concept. I guess what I'm wondering about, what do you say?
1: Like, what's the consequence, or how do we concretize that information? How is it lived? Or the way that
0: I would the way what I was actually curious to follow up on, which I think is the same thing, but is is how does that play itself out and how do we understand that when it's when it when it's showing up in more subtle ways which is what most not everybody there are there are certainly people that this is going on in the extreme but for people for example who it may not be true that at least on the surface that they are scared or uh, they're scared of connection or that they don't have any part of them that wants connection because they date and they get married and only 3 5 years into the marriage all of a sudden this is coming out in very in very strong ways and creating a lot of problems and now they're coming into therapy and you know now you can look back and see the subtle signs but you wouldn't look at this person and say this is a person who never wanted connection you know and so it's showing up in much more subtle ways you know what i mean
1: Absolutely. And I I think there's probably endless ways it could show up. I I could speak to some and I'm curious also what you see in your practice, but some that are just on the top of my mind, um, that idea of, I have a parent who pays attention to me. And so that gives me the confidence to know that I exist. I'm a separate entity. I think what also that could mean is I have a solid identity and a solid sense of self. I know who I am. So if we look at the opposite, people that don't have such a solid identity, don't have such a solid sense of self, how are these people behaving? What are the behaviors that we're seeing in these people? So I think that what we're seeing in these people are people that are constantly engaged in this practice of like evaluating self and creating self based on what they see around them. There isn't a sense of like, I like this.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: feel good about this. This feels good for me. Mm-hmm. And it's something as simplistic as, you know, like I you know, going to the nail salon is a person look at the nail colors and say, "What color do I want?" because like I'm just in the mood for x, y, and z.
0: Mm-hmm. Or are
1: they on whatever site they're on looking at all the different posts of what people are showing and saying, "I want to do that because that seems what's popular and what people are doing right now." yeah so that's like a subtle example yeah of, right right um there there's also I think a sense of a that's helpful can, actually
0: because that is a subtle example and something that probably can show up for a lot of people in small ways
1: and you can take that to you know dress, you can take yeah. that to kitchen design, you can take that to how you plan your your child's bar mitzvah right. i mean this idea and and I'll often ask my patients this like ask yourself, like, do I like it? Like, does that feel synonymous with who I am? And so Mm -hmm. sometimes people will be like, but I don't know who I am is, you know? And so if that's where it can show up and, and people can do, you know, it doesn't necessarily even need to be in the context of therapy, but I think that ongoing work of like answering that question of who I am is, is really important work. Um, how else it might show up is where people are using, I know that's like has a negative connotation, but but using a a spouse or a friend to like calm down or regulate or feel okay, I think that would be kind of another way we see that a person doesn't have like a super strong established sense of self. They're mm-hmm. they're using say they get panicked about something and it's like they have a hard time identifying their own way of regulating their system. They need, like, I need this person to give me a hug, or I I need this person to say this in this particular way for me to calm down. The idea that calming down is found external to the self. So Mm -hmm. I think that's like another way I see that um, showing up.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then I think that another example – bringing it kind of back a little bit to the the primary topic of the book, is that what you just spoke about can show up a lot in terms of a person's religious life and the way that they connect to Hashem. Because how much is the person thinking about what actually connects me to God versus what is happening around me in terms of the community, in terms of expectations, in terms of my Rabayim, maybe my former Rabayim, or what you know, expectations placed on me, family systems, community, etc. Right. And and not really attuning to what is my soul actually here for and what am what am I actually supposed to be doing and how am I actually supposed to be connecting to, to Hashem in my way.
1: Yeah, because it's so personal. It's it's so personal, and I think it takes a lot of thought about what that could look like. And honestly, a lot of like practice and maybe some risk-taking too. Right. Um, you know, and I, it's interesting cause I think we're, we're stuck right now kind of in this, this technological culture and like the next person, I'm, I'm a big user of technology and I, you know, technology is not all bad, but many of us, if we're honest with ourselves or with ourselves are kind of just frozen in this, like, Use of technology, and we're not even thinking about like what is that thing that could connect me to God or connect me to someone else,
0: yeah, so all of this now I want to push back a tiny bit because all of this is about developing the the in a sense maybe called the individuated self, the set the solid anchored sense of self within ourselves, and yet. Sorry, and to finish that, and really tuning into what what do I need and what feels comfortable to me. And yet, we also started the conversation by talking about connection, right? And that the, 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 the reward of connection is more connection, and aloneness breeds more aloneness. And so when you talk about individuation, you didn't use that word, but when you talk about developing this sense of self – you don't mean it in a way of, of aloneness at all, right? And, and, and you mean it in the context of something that actually breeds more connection, right? But there's something paradoxical about that, right? So I'm curious for you to speak that out.
1: So it's interesting. I actually don't see it as a paradox at all, in the sense that I think that the initial self was developed out of connection, Right. Meaning hmm. meaning that first sense of self when we're a little person and we grow into a bigger person that is only developed out of, you know, being being parented and being loved. So I, I and I think that we sort of engage in that in this repetitious way that that self is very much the individual self is developed under the umbrella of connection. And so, too, with God. You know, um, I, I, I really, I think it's honestly the only way and not that we can't have these alone moments that can be inspiring and interesting and, and curious and thoughtful, of course, but we weren't meant to be people that just develop out on an Island by ourselves. Um, I think it's, it's very much connectivity that fosters self
0: Okay, wait. So tell me if I've I've never thought about this in this way, but I think this is really interesting. So we start our existence in connection. Correct. Right, we then actually go through a stage, uh, a process of drifting away from that connection. Not entirely; we but still have
1: the baby learns to crawl away. Like right,
0: right, <laughs> and then as and then you know, I'm I'm not a parent of te- of a teenager yet, but notoriously, infamously known, the teenager is all about wanting that that individuated sense of self and that autonomy. Right of uh, of Hirsch writes that. Naar, which means that you know, a young a young person is like from the word linaer, which is to like shake something off. That the nature by the de- the nature of of a teenager is to wanna shake off whatever's put on them. So there's that that's that stage, like you said, the crawling is the beginning of it, and you can see it physically, literally. But then over time, it continues to develop and into young adulthood. And of course, it's within connection to others because there's friendships, there's family, etc. But it's a more individuated stage. And then in, you know, depending on the culture, exactly what age it's going to be, but in early adulthood, then we come back to something much more similar to the original relationship that we had. And it's not exactly the same as parent-child, but within attachment theory, the spousal relationship is as much an experience of fundamental dependency maybe not in exactly the same way on the surface but deep down it's the same dependency as the parent child so we start in in total connection we then build towards an individual self which then wraps around fully back into that same level of dependency and connection Mm -hmm. which is it's just very interesting to think about it in that way
1: yeah and i would even say i I mean i love that idea because it's it's this beautiful full, full circle um you know, I think there are moments in development that really mirror that going back to sort of that rooted state and mm-hmm. then drifting off to individuation and then going back to that you know when i when I was um in college, I actually i one of my majors is in dance, and we we brought in or one of the women in the class brought in a um, a toddler who was like learning to crawl and walk. And we were supposed to observe this very adorable toddler. And, and I remember her precisely like walking away from her mom and like exploring the classroom and then walking back and then walking away and then walking back. And, and I, I was like, wow, we do this over and over and over again because they do this when they're you know, babies and, and they're crawling. And then they do this again. I really think around like age four and five, like they start to be like, oh my gosh, there's peers. There's like peers that are really cool. And out there, you know, so they walk a little bit away from the parent and then they walk back. And then that really amps up speed around age seven, eight, nine, you know, they're like, again, walking away from that like anchored route and connecting to peers. And then walking back. And then like you said, with the adolescence, it's like a ping pong ball, you know, like <laughs> back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then again, yeah, right around that, that time, the, the spousal relationship is that like, that like hopefully rooted place again. That right. like. And then like,
0: even within that, we still have it, right? Because we exactly. do what we go to work and then we come home, we do our own thing. We come home, we, right. And it's, so it really exists kind of the same... Yeah, and, and it exists on the micro and the macro. It really exists on the macro fully, because if you think about it, you know, spiritually speaking, our, our neshama, our soul started with with Hashem, with God. It's, it's literally, on some, whatever this means exactly, but it's literally a chelak el kamimal, it's intertwined, it's a it's a piece, so to speak, of God. It then kind of has to be sent away into this world. And then it returns and it exists on the micro because every night like, it returns. Oh, I had that
1: connecting right. moment. And then we're like, Oh, where did it go? And connecting right. moment. And then
0: exactly. Yeah. And it happens maybe, you know, six days a week and then Shabbos. So six days is the soul going away and then coming back yeah. on Shabbos. This is happening. That's a, It's really, it's really amazing to think about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And how, and how the the other piece, something you said earlier too, I guess the other piece that I thought about too, when I was reading this about number one, how, when things can happen to us when we're younger, it can make that longing and that hunger for that connectivity sometimes really confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other piece that I think sometimes stands in the way for a lot of us is just the, the effort required, um, the effort and the frustration tolerance to, you know, the grit to go seek out that connection. I th- I think that's the other piece, you know, um, we're so, many of us are so hungry for it, for those kind of magical moments of connection. But I think we all know that like, sometimes you have to put so much effort into getting that, um, mm-hmm. And I think that's really hard. It's really hard for people to sustain that effort or to keep taking those risks. You know, I'll often hear from patients like, "Yeah, I, I want to do that, but like, I've, I've initiated those conversations. I don't want to do that anymore." Um, So I think that's the other piece that I was thinking about. A lot of connection does breed more connection, but there's also this piece of. I think it's hard sometimes to maintain the the grit and the rigor to keep that going, to yeah. sustain that.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and so one of the things I asked earlier, I want to come back to, because I know it's something you have a lot to say about, is what role does shame play in all of this? And then I'm just going to add one piece to it, which is how does that show up also in your view, if you have any thoughts on this, in the relationship with, with Hashem?
1: I mean, I think shame shows up in a lot of ways. The, the way that I define shame, first of all, is the, the visceral reaction we feel in our bodies and our brains when we have not met an ideal. Um, so, you know, I, I wanted to behave this way and I didn't behave this way. I, I had this picture of this ideal self. And I, I didn't get there. And so now I'm sitting with that that feeling like in my diaphragm of, mm-hmm. of shame or I wanted this relationship interaction to go this way. It didn't go the way that I idealized. And I'm sitting with that schism between what I idealized and the actuality of what's occurred. Um, so that, I think, is is the definition of shame the first thing that came to me as I was reading your chapter specifically is that sometimes people can kind of get trapped in these shame cycles. You know, if connection is breeding more connection, we're sort of building this momentum of positivity, Mm -hmm. you know, and relationship. But if, uh, if disconnection breeds more disconnection and we find ourselves sort of in these shame spirals, um, I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. Um, paralyzed by these, um, repetitive negative thought processes, that's shame. Mm. Shame are those repetitive thoughts that play like they're on a hamster wheel. Um, does the,
0: does the unmet ideal need to be that? Because the way you define shame at the beginning actually kind of sounded a little bit more neutral, right? It's the, it's the experience of the unmet ideal, but the way you're talking about it now of I'm unworthy, that's that, that, you know, is, is going in a problematic direction.
1: So I actually think that inherently, sh- you know, shame isn't bad. It's not the monster under the bed. Um, however, I do think that the reason that shame becomes bad for a lot of people is when they don't meet that ideal in their head, their brains and their bodies sort of automatically go into this paralyzing, hypercritical place. Mm-hmm. Um, which keeps them distant. So, um, and, and kind of paralyzed. So no, I, I'm in agreement with you. Mm -hmm. I, I actually think that, that shame can be really positive and pro social. And even in an ideal way, let's say we're not connecting in the way that we want to with someone. Shame can be that thing. That's like, Hey, that's totally not, um, how I wanted it to be. Right. Um, you know, uh, I, I think it was like a year or so ago I was, invited to like a birthday party and i could tell that i was like invited last minute you know what i'm saying and, and i was like yeah yeah and i was like oh that's so awkward and um and i at first i went to that that place of i think the more like perseverative automatic shame of like what's wrong with me you know what did i do um and then i was like no like this person and I are not as connected as we could be. Like, how do I want that relationship to look? Mm -hmm. Like I used that feeling of the relationship I want with this person. It's not totally where I want it to be, but I could do something about that. Mm -hmm. I could, I could, you know, invite this person out for coffee. I could go connect with them. So I think that, yeah, when, when we recognize that in our relationships or, with God, with other people, that we're not sort of ideally where we should be. Many of us unfortunately do get to that place of critical thinking and paralysis, um, but that doesn't need to be where we could go. I think in an ideal sense, Shame is that alarm. It's that alarm that's like, hey, right. you're not holding where like, you want to be holding, right. either in that relationship with that person or that relationship with God. And you don't have to beat yourself up into a, a frozen state because of it, but rather you could use it as like a wake up call mm-hmm. and then momentum to um, engage differently next time. You know, shame is sort of like our most powerful built in educational tool. It lets us know precisely where our, where we're holding, and then it should be kind of that that motivator to push us to change our behavior
0: so what what determines whether the shame experience becomes paralyzing or mobilizing if we can maybe call it that
1: yeah, I like those words um I would say um that it's it's early our early relationship to how we received feedback. Um, you know, if, when we were a kid and we didn't meet, you know, this ideal, what was the feedback that was given to us by our caregiver? Mm-hmm. You know, if, you know, if I had the happiest moment with my three-year-old the other day where he, he messed up on something, like he dropped something. He was like, oopsies. Dad happens. You know, and I was like, "That's what your brain says. That's very good." You know, (laughs) you know. So it's like those earlier experiences. I don't always do that, but okay, okay. (laughs) But but, did we have early experiences when we didn't meet those ideals? When we made a mistake, Mm. were our caregivers like softening the blow with us Mm. and being aligned with us, like being in in sort of a protective? compassionate relational dynamic with us where they're essentially teaching our brain to be like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You didn't do totally what you wanted to do. Like, that's all right. We're good. We could try again. Right. It's it's good to not always be where you totally want to be. Okay, we've got next time. Let's try harder. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but not all of us grew up with that. Right. You know, some of right. us grew up that we screwed up and we got the silent treatment. Some some of us grew up where we screwed up and we got screamed at. Um Some of us um, screwed up and we didn't have anyone coaching us and we were sort of figuring it out on our own.
0: Right. I was just going to bring that up actually because tell me if you agree with this. It could go the other way too, right? If the person, if the caregiver doesn't give any sort of corrective feedback, then then the child will really not learn how to tolerate and experience shame either because then their system almost learns to ignore the reality of the shame that, that they, that they felt.
1: Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said that because I think what we're, you know, the the clinical term we associate that is with that is frustration tolerance or pain tolerance, Mm -hmm. like the body's ability to take feedback because Feedback and shame, it's not comfortable. Right. It's not like I'd ask for it with like my brownie and hot cocoa. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm not, it's not fun anymore. It's so funny
0: you say that because tell me if you've had this. One of the things I've learned, unfortunately, the hard way is that if a client says to me when I first meet them or, you know, at some point, if they say to me, no, I, I need you to just be sh- like, totally honest with me. Like, if you think, like, put me in my place, you know, if you think something is, you know, just tell it to me how it is, you know, talk to me straight, you know, that kind of thing. So when I first started out, I would, I would, you know, take that, you know, and you know, the, 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 the principle of therapy is meet your client where they're at. So if that's where they're at, yeah. that's what they want. Okay. That's my, that's my, that's how I show up. Right. And yeah. what I've now learned is that if a client says that, you that means you even you, you become even more extreme on not talking to them in as direct of a way uh because it it it's there's something feed, feedback is not easy to hear
1: <laughs> no right no it's totally not easy to hear and it's one of the most important things you Right. know it's right. and and maybe that's why it's not easy to hear because I, I often think in life like the things that are sort of like most sacred you know are not you know simple they're right. they um
0: that's a nice you way know. of thinking about
1: so, it yeah yeah so i but yeah shame shame is important it's it's god given it's it's an alarm that goes off in ourselves that says like hey that wasn't where you totally wanted to be like can you do it differently next time that's what we aim for 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 that conversa- that internal conversation with shame. The other piece I do want to include, just because I imagine some people might listen to this and be like, "Oh my gosh, like, I didn't like my parents said like the nicest things to me anytime I screw up, and I still beat myself up all the time. Like, what happened? with were there memories I'm not recalling? You know, so I do just want to add that, like. I think also people can just have a kind of perfectionistic or idealistic personality too. Mm -hmm. you know, um, just inborn that some people are born with just a propensity to like hold themselves to a really high standard and kind of get really down on themselves when they're not, um, being that ideal self.
0: Yeah. And also possibly maybe as a third option, uh, other sources of influence for that, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be the primary caregivers, right? It could have been in school, it could have been with peers, it could have oh, been yes. with peers, friends, it could, I mean, peers, parents, it could have been, there's a, there's, for better and for worse, there's uh and and it, and it is for better and for worse, because it goes in both directions. There are so many yes. sources of influence on our lives. Uh, so, you know, that can be, again, schar mitzvah mitzvah, or, or schar veyra, you know, aveyrah goreris aveyrah, right? So, uh, meaning, any of those influences can can be the savior if our primary influences are subpar, and those can sometimes really be the the, the stars in in the dark of night, and then the opposite as well. Unfortunately, they can also add more darkness at times. Uh, so it, it doesn't right; it's not limited to the primary caregivers.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and i I think going on, along with that too is. You know, there's different times in our lives also where those other influences are going to be more and less, more or less important. You know, um, like if something icky happened with a peer when someone's an adolescent. I mean, that's profound. That's right. very impactful. Yeah, you know, peers are important at that age.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I'm still thinking about this whole idea of of the starting out in such union, individuating, and coming back to union, because it's almost in a sense now. I'm just kind of want to bring this to the last few minutes of the conversation. If you think about it, right, like getting really existential and spiritual. Wait, wait,
1: hold on. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You ready?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the entirety of the exist of the creation of the world also on the most macro level. Yeah. Right. The world starts the, the, the the not world, existence starts as a unity, as oneness. Yes. It starts as God. There's nothing else. God then chooses to constrict himself in order to allow for the creation of an individuated existence that is separate from him. And then the ultimate destiny of that creation is the revelation that Hashem Hu as we scream at the end of Yom Kippur, and Enel Movado, that the creation of the multiplicity of the world is actually all, really in the end, actually just unity with with the unity of hashem and there is nothing besides hashem so the entire trajectory of existence is what you were talking about of that initial oneness which becomes which unfolds into multiplicity and then folds back into itself into that oneness
1: yeah and i feel like we could have like an 8 hour conversation in how this like illustrates itself over and over and over and over again and even on sort of like sort of a silly, but very real, um, way, you know, I've, I've often thought about why do we use the term I'm falling apart?
0: Mm.
1: You know, the idea that we're going from this state of wholeness and we're, you know, in times of panic and, and what have you, we, we feel literally like in pieces and fragmented. And, and so we're constantly trying to create that oneness with ourselves, with others, with God. Yeah. We're constantly, Um, trying to get back to that wholeness.
0: Yeah. And, and maybe what that bringing that much more broad and uh, existential idea, but to a very practical level, maybe what that means is that we all need to, if that's how existence is created and if that's the trajectory of existence, well, then, then that essentially means that that's the template for existence to function well. Right. Those are the grooves that are set, right? So if you know if 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 the train wants to it should be on the grooves on the track. So you want to put yourself on that track. What that means in our individual practical lived lives is we want to be engaging in a process of this back and forth, this this spiral of developing our of, of living in relationship, in connection with with other people, then being able to individuate into ourself and then be able to bring that back into the relationship and then repeat, right? Again and again and again, right? Within everything that we do, whether it's with our spouses, our children, our community, uh, our jobs, whatever it might be, it's the sense of being in connection, developing the self, coming back into connection.
1: And holding that duality, mm-hmm. you know, constantly. Um, because and, and noticing the growing pains around it, yeah, you know, like I don't know, I kind of feel like the the therapist in me wants to be like, okay, everyone, and so the homework now is to notice, you know, <laughs> right, like right, like, right. or the homework for myself is is to notice like what's the growing pain or just noticing that chronic process of connection, separation, development, connection and development inside the connection and development as an individual self
0: right um, and so, and this, and psychologically is- speaking right as the therapist part of us so so for different people different parts of that process are going to be more challenging so for some people it's the it's the being in union that's going to be challenging and then the figuring. question like you yeah. said noticing is okay so notice notice what comes up what makes that challenging and then for some people it's like while i'm in that state of union it's I'm very comfortable. The challenge is to branch out and and explore something of myself on my own and to spend any time with myself and not looking at what other people are posting and not just doing what what the community is doing. And then like you said, okay, so notice, notice why is that challenging for you? What comes up for you when you consider even leaning into that? And then again, on the flip side, coming back into the union, why is that right? So that would and for different people, it's going to be challenging on different sides of the equation.
1: Right. And I think there's sort of two different concretized parts that are really nice and, and specific. It's like, what's your preference generally, like mm-hmm. in union or separate? Like notice which one's your preference, but then also notice the transitions around each, mm. the coming into relationship and the leaving relationship. Right. Um coming into individual self and leaving individual self and, yeah. and what's that like for you?
0: Yeah. And through this, I think through this frame, a person could really explore a lot of different things that they might not have had a lot of awareness around because let's say for example for somebody it's actually the individuated state that's really challenging for them they might not realize that because they when they're in that individuated state they they numb the challenge of that with a whole variety of let's say addictive behaviors right mm-hmm. so but they don't even realize that that's what they're numbing right so that would be a really a really profound noticing okay i know we have to wrap up there's a lot to this this last piece there's there's so much to it i'm just gonna i'm just gonna drop one last uh i don't know whatever it was that you were bracing yourself with for the spiritual leap we took but no i i thought
1: that was clear i was was, good i was like a little worried that it was gonna be like way no because now
0: i want to go i want to go way next i want to i want to add one more thing that's me way more trippy which is okay (laughs) That the Balshemtov, and we'll leave with this, so it'll just be like a okay. you know, a thought for everyone to, to ponder. The the Balshemtov is recorded as saying that he imagines himself falling off of a rooftop and smashing to the ground and breaking into a million pieces, and then in mm-hmm. each one of the pieces is the full being of his self. So there's a full miniature version of him in every piece of him, which I actually is coming to me now in this conversation, because I think it has a lot to do with this, that in the, like you, it came up when you said falling apart, right? Falling to pieces, right? right? But actually each piece contains the whole. So somehow even with, that's even within the individuation into each of the individual pieces in the multiplicity, the unity exists within, within that too, somehow. Okay. That's a lot more to think about.
1: Yeah, but I think you partly, I mean, it's a lot more to think about, but I, I also think because we're never actually alone, right? You said right. that in this chapter, right. right? Like in the multiplicity, like we're never actually by ourselves and we can access wholeness and oneness, um, whenever we want, really.
0: Right. You know? Right. Right. And we're really never alone from the relationship with Hashem. But even within that, we have the Ratzel we have this union, separation union separation uh constantly coming back and forth yeah okay thank you so much for this uh for this time i really appreciate it really thought-provoking conversation
1: yeah thank you so much
0: thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed this please follow us on whatsapp youtube or instagram All our podcast series can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd love to hear from you, so please reach out with questions, comments, or suggestions, or to be added to our WhatsApp groups. You can reach us through email using Yakov yakov.attached at gmail.com or on WhatsApp at 773-888-2413.